Hi folks, welcome to the finale for season one of History in the Making. A few quick things for you before we get started. The one I am most excited about is that even though this is the last episode of the season, there will be two more bonus episodes where the authors of two of my favorite books I've used for the series come on the show and talk about Greece. The first interview is Dr. Melissa Lane, author of the book The Birth of Politics, which examines the political ideas that were born in Athens and how they apply today. And the second is Dr. John Hale, author of the book Lords of the Sea, which tells the story of Athens centered around their incredible navy. So after this episode is done, keep an eye out for those, the first of which should be out in about a week. Also, I still have a few stickers left of the show art that I'm giving away. Send me a message if you like one. You can get in touch with me through the website. That's hitmpodcast.com, and I'll send those right out to you. Next, thank you to the supporters on Patreon. We've actually even had a few new supporters that have shown up since the last episode, which both makes my day and really helps pay the bills. So thank you very much to all of you. If you are enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Any amount helps. And actually, there will not be a charge for the Patreon supporters for the next two episodes, since those are bonus episodes and not full-length normal episodes. Uh, There probably won't be any charges, as a matter of fact, until November, when the second season launches, and when we leave Greece and jump both across the world and 2,000 years ahead. And if you can't support the show on Patreon, no worries. Consider leaving a review for the show, or just telling somebody about it. If you like the show, share it with somebody. It makes all the difference. Finally, I don't plan on producing anything over the summer, but you can always keep in touch through the show's website, Facebook page, and Twitter. For all those, it's just HITM Podcast. Honestly, I'm not terribly active on social media, but I do check them regularly, so if you send me a message or something like that, I will get back to you. And now, with all that being said, please enjoy this, the final episode of Season 1. In the end... It's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to Episode 26, Legacy. For a couple years, I lived in a small town in North Dakota. It had some good coffee shops, a nice bike path, and blisteringly cold winters. But like any small town, you could comb through the whole thing pretty quick. So after spending a few months looking around for new things to do, I decided to go to Craigslist and buy a four and a half inch Newtonian reflector telescope. By some miracle, all of the pieces were there, and during the summer and fall, I would take my new four and a half inch Newtonian reflector telescope and drive 25 minutes outside of town to this park nearby. I'd light up a cigar to help keep the bugs away, and I would set up shop for the evening. Now folks, a dark night sky truly dark, almost suffocatingly dark, is a hard thing to come by. But you can find them in North Dakota. My telescope would wind its way through the heavens and touch on some of my favorites. The Pleiades, Saturn, of course, the faint but impressive Andromeda galaxy, and the orange-blue double star of Albireo. 
But one thing I never got around to finding with my telescope was a star going supernova. And frankly, for a guy with a four and a half inch Newtonian reflector telescope, there's a good chance it would not have looked like much, just a really, really bright star. But it wasn't the visual that appealed to me of a supernova. Instead, it was the knowledge of what was actually happening to that star as you were witnessing it. When a star goes supernova, something incredible can happen. You see, at any point in time, a star, any of the stars you can see, including our sun, is undergoing an internal struggle. The force of its own expansive mass means gravity is trying to make it collapse in on itself, under its own weight, while at the same time, the continual explosion of hydrogen being used for nuclear fusion within the core is trying to expand it, even blast it apart. So these two forces combat each other during the entire lifetime of a star. And for particularly large stars, this struggle can end in one of the most spectacular things the universe has to offer. A supernova. The death of a star. The silent death knell for a star is when they run out of hydrogen. After a few million or billion years, the hydrogen in the core gets nearly used up the source of the fuel for the star. And so it starts to burn hydrogen that's outside the core, and this causes it to swell. The whole star massively swells. When the sun, for instance, goes through this phase, when it starts running low on hydrogen and starts swelling up to be a, what's known as a red giant, it will get so big that it will consume Mercury, and then Venus, and then may even engulf Earth if it's still around at that point. The star is massive, and it looks all big and impressive, but it's fundamentally broken. All the good sources of fuel in that star have been consumed, liquidated. So the hydrogen in the core is essentially used up, and so it starts to burn helium in the core. And for particularly large stars, much larger than our sun, this process will continue on and on. Stars burning heavier and heavier elements and using all of its fuel until eventually, due to everything that it's burning, iron starts to form in the core of this star. And it's when a star begins to form iron, we run into a problem. Burning the lighter elements, the hydrogen, is what makes a star a star. But fusing heavier elements doesn't create the energy needed to sustain this star and keep that continual nuclear explosion in the star's center going. So as iron starts to form, the star runs out of energy at its core to fight against that mass of gravity. And the gravity of the star begins to win out and the star begins to collapse in on itself. The pressure of the entire star falls in onto the weight of the core of the star, and the core is left to shoulder the incredible burden of supporting the star's entire weight. It's like the Titan Atlas trying to hold up the heavens in mythology, but on steroids. The pressure exerted on the core is simply incredible. Just to give you an idea of how much pressure is on the core right now, after this experience, after this core is compressed by the rest of the star from shouldering the burden, a half cup of the core, like you used to measure flour and make cookies or something, a half cup of the core after this would weigh something like 300 trillion pounds, or about the weight of Mount Everest. That's the kind of pressure we're talking about. So gravity starts to win out and the star starts to shrink down and the entire weight of the star is pressing in on this core and it looks like the star is going to collapse entirely, except it runs up against this hyperdense core and we have a moment 
of final resistance. A division forms between the forces that are trying to collapse the star and the forces that are trying to sustain it, the same forces that were once trying to expand it. And as these two forces are pushing up against each other and the shockwave is formed near the end of the star's life, while it's still technically surviving and it's a star, it can eject some of its shell. Some of its mass can be lost into the space around it. So the struggle continues until for reasons we are really only starting to understand, this shockwave between these two forces falters and the entire weight of the star collapse inwards hits the core, rebounds off it, and goes blasting outwards, and this is when that supernova occurs. This is the massive explosion that is triggered, and it blasts apart most of the star. It speeds pushing 70 million miles per hour. It's about 100 million kilometers per hour, or 10% the speed of light. That's how fast we're dealing with. We have to use percentages of light now. So for particularly close or large supernova, they're so spectacular, they're so bright that you can see them during the daytime. One that fired off in the year 1054 was so bright that it turned the heads of ancient Chinese astronomers across the entire country, and you could see it for weeks in the middle of the day. By any standard, this is an incredible spectacle. It's a jaw-dropping finale to a star's life, but the star, as it was once known, is dead. Much of the star gets blasted away, and the only thing that remains is that hyper-dense core. And let's revisit just how dense these things are, just for a second. You've probably heard before about how we would weigh different weights on different planets, depending on the mass of that planet. You've probably done this in grade school or something before. Like, for instance, I weigh 180 pounds here on Earth, give or take. On the moon, I'd weigh something like 30 pounds. On Jupiter, I'd weigh something like 450 pounds. If I was standing on the sun, I would weigh almost 5,000 pounds. But if I was standing on one of these dead cores, known as a neutron star, if I was standing on one of these dead cores after a supernova, I would weigh 25 trillion pounds. I would be instantly obliterated. That's how much density these things have. They are unrelentingly massive and unmovable. NASA describes them as, quote, a showcase for extreme physical processes and unimaginable cosmic violence, end quote. Now, we're getting to the end here. I know I've been talking about stars for a little bit. I just have a little more that I want to tell you. You see, after the supernova occurs and the star is blasted apart, the pieces that once formed the brilliant parts of the star, things like hydrogen, and once created a brilliant source of heat and life, though at times scorching and unforgiving heat. These pieces float aimlessly about in the vastness of space and are subject to whatever other entity is nearby. By themselves, they're virtually helpless. They have very little purpose unless they can start to gather. And slowly, ever so slowly, the trace amounts of gravity start pulling these pieces of dust and gas together. They start drifting towards each other, and as more and more of them gather, more gravity is created. And it starts attracting more and more of them, and they start piling up and piling up. And in the middle, they start becoming more dense. They may even attract the help of some of the things that are around, be it other nebula, or extra dust, other remnants of supernova. But as all these pieces gather into what really starts to form a new core, it starts to attract other materials. 
Material continues to form around this new center mass, known as a protostar now. And over the course of perhaps a million years, it can gain enough dust and gases and material to build up enough of a core that enough pressure is created that hydrogen reignites a nuclear fusion and the protostar, now a true star, ignites. Roaring to life, the new star blasts out, consuming everything around it, and it begins to truly burn bright again. Finally, as you can probably guess, the cycle eventually starts over, and a new star is faced with the same impending spectacular doom as the two forces within it once again start to fight each other. And unless something truly catastrophic happens, like a black hole sucking up that corner of the universe, this cycle will continue on and on, over and over again. Now, this is far from a perfect understanding of a supernova and the life of a star, but it should be enough for today. The 27-year-long Peloponnesian War is over. Athens has burnt through nearly every good element the city had to offer. Towards the end of the Athenian Empire, even as the empire swelled, reaching from Greece through islands of the Aegean and daring even to envelop portions of Asia Minor, it spent everything it had to get so large and it could no longer sustain the weight of empire. Sparta has at last defeated Athens and, surprisingly to everyone, decided to show mercy. The city of Athens would remain, but the democracy was over and Athens would look entirely different. The navy has essentially been demolished. A total of 12 ships is all that remains of the fleet that had once been as high as perhaps 300 ships. The ship sheds where these triremes were housed and maintained were sold at a fraction of their worth. And it wasn't just the government and navy that were changed, even the symbols of Athens' relationship with the sea were severed. The speaker's platform on the Nix, the hill where the Athenian assembly would debate issues and often meet. Normally the speaker's platform was situated so that the speaker, as they were addressing the assembly, would be looking out over the sea, looking at the playground dominion and source of Athenian power while they spoke. In what was clearly a symbolic move, the Spartans turned this platform around so that when the speakers addressed the assembly, they would face inland forcing them to stare at the land and remind them of the new order in Spartan sovereignty. Even the men that had driven Athens to further and further greatness in this empire were gone. Most recently, Thrasylus has been killed, the younger Pericles has died, the 3,000 Athenians that served in the navy that Lysander took prisoner have all been executed, and one more man joins the ranks of the deceased. Always vivacious and inspiring, Alcibiades was staying in a house with a woman one night when a group of armed men showed up outside. They carried with them torches and weapons, and they were not here by accident. They were sent. They set the house on fire. Alcibiades came running out, shouting challenges, his sword in his hand, but as he ran outside, he was instead simply filled with javelins and arrows. I know this is an abrupt ending to Alcibiades' life, and we have conflicting accounts on who actually sanctioned it. Some place the blame on those in Athens, others Lysander, others people in Persia, and most sources have some sort of conspiratorial element where people in Athens would convince Lysander that Alcibiades was too dangerous to live and he needed to die. But really, this is not hard to believe. This is Alcibiades. 
it's no surprise that powerful people all over the Greek world wanted him dead for one reason or another. I mean, even today, opinions are still divided about Alcibiades. Each book you read will have a slightly different bent on him. Some praise him as a military genius. Others say he's dead weight to Athens, and he's more like the guy in your high school group project that does 5% of the work, but manages to get 95% of the credit. But no matter where they come down on Alcibiades, they virtually all agree on two things. He had an inclination towards taking risk, and he had the ability to inspire. There are many people throughout history that have had delusions of grandeur, and perhaps Alcibiades was merely one of them, but what made him unique was his ability to inspire others to see his grandeur too. But be this grandeur real or imagined is something still up for debate over 2,000 years later. The life of Alcibiades, a source of almost unending charisma and daring, was finally, abruptly, extinguished. Back in Athens, Lysander threw the crushing weight of the new Spartan Empire directly at Athens. Lysander demanded that Athens be ruled by 30 men for now until new laws could be drafted up and a new government put in place. Theramenes objected. Quick reminder on Theramenes, he's been involved in politics for quite a while now. He was instrumental in shutting down that coup of the extreme oligarchs that happened in 411. He was the one that negotiated the final peace between Sparta and Athens. So he was essentially a figurehead in Athenian politics by now. And so he goes to Lysander in protest about this new system Lysander wants to put in place, these 30 men. Lysander doesn't have time for this. This is Lysander. He's cold and calculating. He has total power. He can do whatever he wants. And so he simply tells Theramenes, listen, you guys already broke the treaty when you didn't tear down your walls fast enough. So we can kind of do whatever we want here. And if you keep protesting, I'll just kill you. Theramenes has no power in this situation. He's silenced and 30 men are chosen to run Athens. Now, Theramenes is actually picked as one of the people to be part of the 30. The people are hoping that perhaps Theramenes can be a bit of a moderating force on the 30 if he's there. I mean, after all, think about what they were probably thinking right now. Democracy has just had a run of about 100 years with really virtually any interruption from oligarchy. And so strong supporters of oligarchy and haters of the democracy are probably fed up with this system and have some very extreme changes they would like to make. So when the 30 men are chosen, Theramenes is also selected hoping that he would keep these 30 from doing anything too extreme. The 30 are chosen. Lysander leaves to go deal with other matters in the new Spartan Empire, little pockets of resistance, and the people now have to bear the weight of a new oligarchical regime. Now, a few weeks go by, and the 30 really haven't written any laws. They're pretty slow to act. The only thing they've really done so far is put together a leading council for Athens. Instead... They occupied themselves with different matters. You see, in Athens, there were those that during the time of the Athenian Empire had been blackmailing the leading noblemen and were ardent supporters of extreme democracy during the war. And so the 30 began having these men arrested and executed. And this sounds really dramatic, and on one hand it is, but the men that the 30 were executing weren't even really liked by the people that much. They were blackmailers, and they took advantage of the war. And so when these men were executed by the 30, the people didn't like it, but they generally agreed with it. The people might have said, well, we're sorry these men have to die, but 
they did use blackmail during times of war for their own gain. So, we'll accept it. The 30 were beginning to put just a little bit of pressure on the people, but the people didn't entirely disagree and they continued to bear the weight of the 30. And while the 30 were doing this work, they decided that since it was going to take a while to write these new laws and since they did need some protection from the people, they should hire a Spartan garrison. They sent word to Lysander that, hey, we could use some troops just to help enforce the laws over here in the meantime. I mean, they're not going to make soldiers out of the common people. Those are just supporters of democracy. That wouldn't do at all. So they sent word to Lysander. Lysander loved this idea. He sent troops back. The 30 even offered to pay for the Spartan garrison to stay there, pay their wages and everything. So Lysander sends some troops to Athens, and Athens now has a Spartan garrison in it, backing the will of the 30. And as the 30 grow stronger, the type of men that they execute begins to shift just a bit. Although at first it was just men that the people generally agreed with, people like blackmailers for instance, the 30 started to execute anyone who had just been outspoken supporters of democracy during the war. They would put together lists of names that contained people that had simply been popular during the democracy. And they begin to find anyone that had driven democracy on in the past, or still had enough popular support from the people now, and begin to snuff them out. The 30 were proactively looking for things that would resist their pressure, their grip, on Athenian society. If you had popular support with the people and could hypothetically rally the people together to oppose them, well, that was enough to get you killed. If you didn't really have anything against the 30, but you also had been an extreme supporter of democracy, always shouting out in the assembly and supporting the most vigorous measures of democracy, well, that was also enough to get you killed. Anything that might resist the will of the 30 was crushed. And the 30 would say that these men are a danger to Athens. That, well, democracy got us in trouble in the past, Oligarchy is what we have now. These men are against oligarchy, therefore they should die. But Xenophon, the author of our primary text, simply calls this for what it is. He says, look, the 30 are appointing a council to lead Athens that are sympathetic to them, while also taking out people with enough power to oppose them, and claiming that those people are enemies. In short, the 30 are consolidating power. The former democracy is all but forgotten, and the structure of Athenian society is beginning to change from the pressure on it. Now, Theramenes, remember, he's one of the 30, and he is in a delicate position here. Even though he does think oligarchy, in some form or another, is the best method of governing, he has no interest in tyranny or the abuse of power. So as the 30 begin to take more and more liberty with who they're executing, and he knows he can't reason with them or he'll look like a supporter of democracy and they'll turn on him. So he appeals to their more pragmatic side. He tells them that based on the way they're ruling with such force, their base of power is way too small to be taking such liberties with who you're killing off. In other words, he could have said something like, you can't just take down opposition when there isn't an outlet for the people to voice their concerns. We need an assembly where the people can be heard and they need to feel that the power you wield is shared. And on one hand, the 30 kind of agreed. They know that even though they do have this Spartan garrison, there are literally thousands of people still in Athens, and that 30 is not enough to take them all on. So they decide to put together a list of 3,000 people to share in the power of government. 
And on the surface, this looks great. Okay, 3,000 might be a little small, but hey, it's the start of an assembly. Now the people can have a voice in government again. No, no, they can't. These 3,000 were all handpicked by the 30. This is not a fair sample of the Athenian population by any means, but instead, it is a thinly veiled way for the 30 to keep power and look like they're listening. Theramenes calls them out on it. Theramenes sees that the burden the 30 are placing on the people is too much. And looking forward to the danger of what this could reduce the city of Athens to, he starts to push back on behalf of the people. And a division begins to form between the pressure of the 30 and their 3,000 falling down and meeting the unwavering Theramenes and the support of the people. A clear line begins to separate the two sides. And this is difficult for Theramenes because the 30 have total power in this situation. If you oppose the 30, you can find yourself with a death sentence. So Theramenes is using all of his political skill to stay alive while at the same time trying to protect the people from the 30. He's in a very delicate position. Regardless, Theramenes still resists. And he tells the 30 that 3,000, the 3,000 they picked to be the pseudo-assembly, is a completely arbitrary number. 3,000 is way too small to really represent the people, and that the core of Athens, people that used to support democracy, and probably still do, will not be heard in this new government. And again, the 30 don't necessarily disagree with Theramenes. Heck, they kind of agreed with him. They kind of understand what he's saying. They realize that, okay, yeah, 3,000 isn't enough to really hold power, but they're not thinking about how to create a fair government. They're thinking about how they can secure their own power against the people, however many of them there are. And if we were still during the times of democracy, by the way, what this would probably look like is a demagogue coming along and convincing everybody that they knew best. I mean, we saw this with Cleon and many others. But the 30 aren't trying to convince the people that they have their best interest in mind. They're just trying to make sure it doesn't matter what the people think. And so they think of another solution. They were not demagogues that had to pander to the will of the people. They had the power, and they could instead simply tighten their grip until any resistance was crushed. They began applying a new type of pressure. The 30 started to disarm the population. They collected the weapons of the city and declared that only the 3,000 could keep weapons. The rest of the population would be disarmed. They had all the weapons gathered in the central places of the city, and they took possession of everything they could find. They went ahead and stripped off the thin veil of running Athens through legal means and decided to rule it with an iron fist that just so happened to be holding all the swords left in the city. Now, let's bring this into the modern day a bit, and we're going to focus on the United States here. Let's set up a dystopian novel. Let's say, in our novel, the United States military has decided to go full rogue. It's sick of mucking around with congressional procedure while waiting for funding and doing the whole legal song and dance every time it wants to change something. So I'm not talking about some small squabble with you know, federal agents or policemen or something somewhere. I am saying, in this dystopian novel that we are writing here, the United States military just wants to drop all restrictions and go nuts, have a proper coup, take over the entire country, and put it under martial law. Okay, now let's say that in this scenario, you've got yourself a gun, some kind of nice high-powered hunting rifle, and you're even a great shot, maybe the best in your city. Now that rifle and those skills will give you a little bit of an edge if you're going to try to resist the whole military, 
And in the dystopian novel we're writing, I'm sure everything would work out fine and you would be a hero and save the United States of America. But realistically, it is going to be really hard to take that hunting rifle and shoot down a fighter jet that's flying at twice the speed of sound. So hypothetically, if your rifle is taken away from you, you're just going to go from kind of helpless to definitely really helpless against a flying fighter jet. Now, this isn't a veiled critique of gun control. That would take a much longer podcast to get into, of course. But I'm trying to make one very specific point. In this dystopian novel that we have just written, if you have a hunting rifle and it gets taken away and you're trying to fight a fighter jet, well, that really doesn't change how helpless you are anyway. You never really stood a chance to begin with. That's not the case in Athens. The 30 and the 3000 have swords. And the people have swords. Even fight. So when the swords are taken away, the people go from evenly matched to an extreme disadvantage. And now that the population has been disarmed, the 30 could do just about whatever they wanted, and the resistance of the people faltered. The opening salvo of arbitrary power of the 30 was arbitrary execution. They needed to raise funds so they could continue to pay this Spartan garrison That was largely responsible for keeping them in power. They were the muscle in Athens. And Athens was no longer funneling money in from an empire. So if you were the guy in the 30, studying the books and figuring out how do we pay all these Spartan men that are here protecting us, well, you would realize a loophole. You see, the only people in Athens right now that actually need a trial before execution are the 3,000 that the 30 handpicked. Everybody else was fair game. If the 30 said they should die, then they should die. And the leading man of the 30, a man named Critias, he suggested that all of them should grab a metric. That's a foreigner that's living in Athens, not technically a citizen, but they're usually major players in the economy of Athens, and so they can be quite wealthy. Critias suggests that each of the 30 should grab two metrics and kill them and take their property to continue funding the 30. Theramenes' jaw was on the floor. He says this is a naked abuse of power, and he tells them it's ridiculous that they, the 30, as the leading men in Athens who were supposed to be the best equipped to lead the city, were behaving worse than the original informers and blackmailers and democratic extremists that they had killed. Even Socrates, though not one of the 30, was ordered to bring a man back to Athens to be killed, and he refused. But the protests of Theramenes and Socrates accomplished very little. It was not enough to stop the overwhelming force of the 30, the 3,000, and the Spartan garrison that bore down on the metrics of Athens. The 60 richest metrics were executed and their property was taken. It was obvious what was happening here now. The 30 had taken control as tyrants and it was only their will and wealth that mattered. Anyone that had connections with the previous democracy, or was wealthy, or simply a personal enemy of the 30, would find themselves with a death sentence on their head. Refugees began to trickle out of Athens, and the once prominent citizens of Athens were shed from the city that they once called home. The 30 had Sparta's support, they had the weapons of the population, and those that used to be rich and powerful in Athens were running for their lives. Only a loyal crowd of 3,000 remained within the city, and all of this was supported by the Spartan garrison that was loyal to the 30. Only one potential threat remained. 
Theramenes. The Thirty called a council, and Critias addressed the Council of Athens, saying that the oligarchy was now needed to properly run the city, but since the city was so steeped in the history of democracy, executions were going to be necessary. He said it's natural for a little bloodshed to accompany the change in government, and that anyone who's resisting these changes needs to be dealt with for the good of the city. And then he looks at Theramenes and goes on the attack. He first reminds everyone that it was Theramenes who was assigned with rescuing the men left in the water that died after one of the last great battles of the war, and that Theramenes is always changing his political views to suit whatever side is convenient, and, ramping up to his final accusation, he says that now, by resisting the oligarchy, Theramenes is committing treason against Athens and should be executed. Now, no matter your opinion of Theramenes, he is a slick politician. He knows that all the men in the council are essentially noblemen, and are the few left standing after all this bloodshed. He knows that they probably think quite well of themselves. So, while catering to his audience, Theramenes starts to dismantle the points of Critias one by one. Theramenes launches into his speech by saying that Critias has bad information about the role that he, Theramenes, played in that battle that left the men to die. Quoting here, I do not wonder, however, that Critias has misunderstood the matter, for when these events took place, it chanced that he was not here. He was establishing a democracy in Thessaly along with Prometheus and arming the serfs against their masters. God forbid that any of the things which he was doing there should come to pass here. End quote. And it's with this ominous beginning that Theramenes pulls some deft maneuvering and says, yes, if anyone is moving against these fine men, motioning to the council, then they should certainly be punished. But these extreme actions the 30 are taking, killing our metrics and our citizens, they're not necessary. And it's causing us to lose allies both at home and abroad. He then closes by addressing the attacks aimed at his loyalty, while making some not-so-subtle critiques of Critias. Quoting again, To direct the government and company with those who have the means to be of service, whether with horses or shields, this plan I regarded as best in former days. And I do not change my opinion now. He's referring to his support for the oligarchy. And if you can mention any instance, Critias, where I joined hands with demagogues or despots and undertook to deprive men of standing of their citizenship, then speak. For if I am found guilty of doing this thing now or having ever done it in the past, I admit that I should justly suffer the very uttermost of all penalties and be put to death. It is a direct, bold challenge to Critias in front of the 30, in front of the council, and the council starts to shout cheers of support for Theramenes towards the end of his speech. He's not even done talking, and people are already calling out cheers of support for him. Critias walks away. Theramenes is the last standing obstacle to really absolute power by the 30, and it seems like Theramenes will stay that way for a while longer. Critias walks over from the speaker's area, leaves it, goes back to the 30, and says a few words to them, and then leaves and just goes outside. Theramenes has won the support of the council, but it is not quite enough. A group of young men armed with daggers come running into the council area. They surround the speaker's platform and box in Theramenes from the rest of the council. This all happens so fast, nobody even really has time to react. 
While the Council and Theramenes are reeling, Critias comes sauntering back inside, looks up at the Council, and to paraphrase just slightly here, he says, Senators, I deem it the duty of a leader, when one sees his friends are being deceived, to not permit it. I, therefore, shall follow that course. Besides, these men who have spoken their stand here, referring to the armed men surrounding Theramenes, they say that if we propose to let a man go who is manifestly injuring the oligarchy, they will not suffer us to do so. In other words, Critias just called a mob of armed men in from outside, and then is saying, well, these armed men need us to kill them, so I guess we should do so. And I, as the leader, think it's wise, and will not permit you to be deceived by the wise words of Theramenes. Critias continues, Now it is in the new laws that while none of those who are on the roll of the 3,000 may not be put to death without your vote, the 30 shall have the power of life and death over those outside the roll. I therefore strike off this man Theramenes from the roll with the approval of all the 30. Theramenes has just been removed from the roll, which are the only people under the control of the 30 that have the privilege of a trial before being condemned to death. Theramenes understood the implications of what Critias was doing, and it would have come at no surprise to him when Critias then finished by saying, quote, That being done, we now condemn him to death. Theramenes ran to the altar in the council, as most holy places would provide you protection from being legally killed. But to Theramenes, ever the brilliant politician, he knew that this was not going to be enough protection from the 30, but it was instead a symbol of their tyranny. As he clung to the altar with a death sentence on his head and the muscle of the 30 approaching him to drag him away, he screamed out to the council, paraphrasing just a bit for clarity here, I know all too well and swear by the gods that this altar will not help me at all. Instead, I wish to show that these 30 are not only most unjust towards men, but impious towards the gods. But, now he's looking at the men of the council, I am surprised at you, gentlemen of the aristocracy, that you are not going to defend your own rights, especially when you know that if my name can be struck off the roll so easily, then so can yours. But the council does not move a muscle and the guards of the 30 begin to rip Theramenes off of the altar. Critias looks to the guards and tells them that Theramenes is now handed over to you according to the law. Take him away and execute him. Theramenes continues to yell to the men and gods to witness what is happening, but I don't think he's really even expecting help anymore. Instead, he is simply trying to make the point that this is not the rule of the law. Instead, he is saying that the 30 are now ruling as the 30 tyrants, and they will do as they please. Socrates and two others do rush forward to help him, but they are alone. No one else is moving, and so as Socrates and these others come up to help Theramenes, Theramenes just tells them to stop. Rescue is obviously a doomed effort, with only the few of them resisting, and he did not want to be the cause of their death too, since no one else was helping. Theramenes was physically dragged from the council while screaming to gods and men to witness what was happening. He's led from the council and through the city, from the city and through the agora, and all the while he is shouting to everyone that can hear him in the busy but war-torn Athens that he is being taken to his wrongful death. And they might be next. People watched 
and people wept, but nobody dared move while he shouted. One of the men taking him away told him that he would be sorry if he was not quiet, but Theramini simply replies, and if I keep silent, will I not be just as sorry? He continues his protest, but the people don't dare move, but instead only cried and wept as he was dragged towards his death. They knew that if a man like Theramenes could be killed so openly without a care, then their own lives were worthless, and they were completely subject to the crushing weight and sovereignty of the 30 tyrants. Theramenes was dragged to the prison of Athens, and a cup of hemlock was shoved into his hand. In his final moments, he did not panic, he did not even lose his sense of humor. Instead, he took his final draft and mimicked a popular drinking game. He drank his poison and then took the last drops of deadly hemlock and toasted to, quote, his beloved Critias. The poison worked its way through his body, and as Theramenes died and his lungs collapsed, so too collapsed the final resistance to the Thirty. The Thirty now had unquestionable, unopposed power over Athens, and they blasted into it. Even before Theramenes died, only the 3,000 were allowed to remain within the walls of Athens. The 30 killed anyone who opposed them, the rich for their money, the poor for supporting democracy, and anyone the 30 named would be slaughtered. They and their family could literally be killed in the night with impunity, and around 100 men were being executed every month on the whims of the 30, with their families being killed simply as an asterisk on that death sentence. By the end of the 30s rule, later in our story, about 5% of the population would be killed simply on their word. The 30 ripped through Athens, tearing apart their opposition, and refugees were flung from Athens and out across Greece. Athenians that had once stood in the Knicks, overlooking the sea and deciding the fate of entire cities, whose well-being rested entirely on their judgment, these same citizens now fled from Athens as homeless refugees and drifted through Greece looking for a place to settle. The blast to Athens was so powerful that it turned heads and cities all the way across Greece, and they watched the fate of Athens. Athenian refugees poured into neighboring cities like Argos, Megara, Thebes, while others simply made the short trip down to the Piraeus and took shelter. The Greek world watched the slaughter of Athens, and most of the cities pitied them. Athens may have been hated in some corners of the world, but very few people thought that they deserved this. The one city that mattered, though, Sparta, looked on this slaughter with approval. Using the cold hard math that Lysander had shown to be so effective, the Spartans declared that any exiles seeking shelter should be returned to Athens and the rule of the Thirty. If the Athenian people were left to stand simply on the mercy of Sparta and the Thirty, they would be obliterated. Sparta and the Thirty were unremorseful and unmovable. Even though few cities thought Athens deserved this, they were powerless to resist Sparta. Sparta had just taken control of the Athenian Empire. Sparta had just fought a 27-year-long war to show that they were easily the strongest player in Greece. So if you were in one of these cities, and you see an Athenian refugee being arrested and dragged away to likely die, 
What choice do you have? You could save that one person, maybe, but at the risk of a Spartan army showing up on your city's doorstep. Despite the risk, though, a few cities, some of the strongest cities, refused to comply with Spartan demands. Argos took pity on the Athenians and hated the Spartans anyway. They welcomed the refugees to their city. Thebes also refused to comply with Sparta and even passed a law that all possible assistance should be given to any Athenian exiles who were being arrested to be dragged back to the 30. And these Athenian refugees that were drifting through Greece began to find support and places to gather. Compared to the peaks of the Athenian Empire, Athens now is left barren. The only people that are still alive we've really spent any time with are Socrates, Conan, and Thrasybulus. Socrates is in Athens, but he's taking more of a stoic approach to the Thirty, where he's not approving of what they do, but he's also not really resisting them. Conan is taking refuge in Cyprus with his men after barely escaping the final battle with Lysander, and Thrasybulus is taking refuge in Thebes. But Thersibulus is on the move. Even as Theramenes dies in Athens, Thersibulus moves from Thebes, gathering a mere 70 men, and they begin moving towards Athens once again. They take control of a stronghold to the north of Athens. The 30 hear about this, and their cavalry are all rallied out to go take out Thersibulus and his men, but on the way, this big snowstorm kicks up, and the 30 and their forces have to return to Athens. And so now that Thrasybulus has a stronghold with a mere 70 men, it's not much, it's a tiny amount in order to take on the 30 in their power, but it means that the previously aimless people of Athens now had a place to go. 70 men became 700. They began to raid the area around their stronghold with Thrasybulus leading them. And Thrasybulus is not just some man that's been elected to lead them, he's an experienced general. He is probably the most experienced and best equipped general alive right now for Athens. And he's so effective at these raids with these comparatively smaller group of men, the 700 and growing, that the 30 try to hamstring their resistance by offering Thrasybulus and any 10 men of his choosing to come back and live in the city and to live in power. He declines. Unwaveringly, he tells them that he prefers exile to joining them and that his terms for returning to Athens are that when every single citizen is once again able to live under their proper constitution. Thrasybulus and his men move down to the Piraeus and the resistance attracts other Athenian fighters. 700 men become a thousand and they take up positions in the Piraeus. Now keep in mind, there's no longer the famous long walls connecting Piraeus to the city, but instead just an open road. Thrasybulus and his men take up positions in front on this road, and they can see the 30 and their 3,000 moving towards them. For the 30, this is far too close for the resistance to have come, and they need to be torn from the Piraeus and kicked out. While the 3,000 advance, Thrasybulus and his men can see the 30 in their ranks moving towards them. Thrasybulus points the 30 out to his men saying, there are the ones responsible for what is happening to you. And as the 30 and their forces come down, the way this is situated is that the 30 and their forces have to walk along essentially this road while Thrasybulus and his men were all up on this hill. And so 
Thrasybulus and his men, they have a lot of light troops, they have a lot of javelin throwers, things like that. So as the 30 and their forces start coming closer to Thrasybulus, all Thrasybulus's men have to do is start throwing their weapons and they're bound to hit something because the 30 and their forces are packed so tight. The front two lines of these opposing forces hold, while Thrasybulus and his men let loose everything they have. Critias is killed in the fighting, and the 30 can no longer withstand them. The 30 and 3,000 have to retreat, but as they pull back and each force is able to collect their dead, there are not the typical signs of victory that you would see. Thrasybulus and his men, they don't build a trophy of victory like would be common. They don't strip the dead of their goods, they only take their swords from them. These were their neighbors. They were the men that lived beside them for years, and now they are fighting against each other. As the two forces stand there, the two sides each begin to walk among their dead, and they look solemnly at each other, and they begin to talk. The two sides that had just been trying to kill each other just moments ago are now mingling together in little groups. And over the hum of these dejected conversations, one man from the forces of the core Democratic supporters speaks up. He addresses the crowd and gives what can only be described as a heartbreaking speech while looking on both his dead friends and the friends that killed them. Quote, Fellow citizens, why do you drive us out of the city? Why do you wish to kill us? For we never did any harm, but we have shared with you in the most solemn rites and sacrifices, in the most splendid festivals. We have been companions in the dance, and schoolmates and comrades in arms, and we have braved many dangers with you, both by land and by sea, in defense of the common safety and freedom of us both. In the name of the gods of our fathers and mothers, in the names of our ties of kinship and marriage and comradeship, for all these many of us share with one another, cease, out of shame before the gods and men, to sin against your fatherland and do not obey those most accursed thirty, for who the sake of their private gain have killed in eight months more Athenians almost than all the Peloponnesians in ten years of war. And when we might live in peace as fellow citizens, these men bring us war with one another, a war most utterly shameful and intolerable, utterly unholy and hated by both gods and men. Yet for all that, be well assured that for some of those now slain by our hands, not only yours, but we also have wept bitterly. When the 3,000 returned to Athens, they talked dejectedly among themselves. They knew that these men were right. They knew that the 30 had brought this down upon them. And so they voted them out. The 3,000 did have power to vote, and so they kicked out the 30 and ended their rule. But this was not some glorious beginning to democracy again in Athens. Instead, the 3,000 picked 10 new men, one from each tribe, to be the new leadership in Athens. And this civil war continued. There was the men in the very symbolic Piraeus that were supporters of the democracy. There were the men up in Athens who supported oligarchy, and the war continued. There was really just a lot of skirmishes, though, at first. I mean, the people in the Piraeus did come up and actually attack the walls of Athens, but by and large, what would happen here is that a group of men would go up from the Piraeus to raid the surrounding countryside, and they would have spears and shields and everything. And so then when the cavalry from Athens would show up, the oligarchs and their soldiers, 
the men from the Piraeus would just get together in a phalanx and the cavalry couldn't really touch them. But of course, they also couldn't catch up with and kill the cavalry. So we kind of have this standstill. Occasionally fights would break out and skirmishes would go on all the time, but it was never anything deciding. And so the men in the Piraeus were actually building siege weapons and going to try to attack the walls of Athens directly. But the oligarchs would come out and bring giant blocks pulled by oxen and drop them in the road leading up to Athens. So there was no way to bring these siege engines up to Athens. And this war continued. Eventually, the 3,000 and the 10 now decided that they needed help. They sent word to Sparta to bring Lysander back. Lysander had been busy in other parts of these new Spartan empire, but now his gaze returned to Athens. To Lysander, this was a simple problem. Bring his ships, bring his army, drop the Piraeus under siege, and a near vacuum seal would occur, and bam, rebellion's over. They would have to surrender. They have nothing that can touch all the ships. So as Lysander starts to move towards Athens, the men in the Piraeus hear about it, and they're devastated. They know that they have virtually no chance against Lysander and his navy. Lysander took down Athens when it had hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of men. Now they have perhaps a few thousand men and barely a ship to their name. And so the best hope for these men in the Piraeus, strangely enough, is in Sparta. Back in Sparta, people are starting to worry about how successful Lysander is becoming. He's already defeated Athens once, after all, and if he does it again, he might just be able to become a king. He's going to have that much support. Keep in mind, he's only supposed to serve one year as the naval commander, But it seems that Lysander's support and success does not have a time limit. So back in Sparta, they decide that someone else needs to be the one to go take down Athens this time. Otherwise, Lysander is simply going to be too powerful. The king, Pausanias, is directed to go take care of this squabble in Athens. Now, by the way, this is a new king. We haven't mentioned him before. He has the same name as a previous major player in Sparta, but it's a totally different man. So... Pausanias takes his army when he arrives, and because he doesn't want to look like he's holding anything back against the men in the Piraeus, he goes for an immediate direct assault. But it doesn't work. He gets pushed back, the whole thing reverts to occasional skirmishes, much to the chagrin of Sparta. Now I'm going to tell you right now that somehow, democracy is restored in Athens. But the way that it's restored is probably not what you're expecting. There is not some big glorious battle where Thrasybulus and his supporters somehow overcome all odds and bring democracy back to Athens. That does not happen at all. Instead, one of the skirmishes that are going on between the Spartan army and Thrasybulus and his men starts escalating. Pausanias sends in the cavalry to go take care of these skirmishers. The skirmishers run away and fall back to where a bunch more of their light troops are. These light troops unleash their weapons and drive the cavalry away. But in this interim, both sides bring up their main troops, and what ends up happening here is pretty much a full-scale pitch battle happens. Thrasybulus takes all his men and he stacks them up in ranks, but they're only eight deep. That's all the men that Thrasybulus have. Sparta does not have this problem. They stack up in deep phalanxes, and so by the time these two forces meet, the Spartans are able to hit Thrasybulus like a battering ram. The democratic Athenians are driven back until they are backed up against a marsh. Now, in this battle, let's take just a second here to appreciate how claustrophobic this situation is. You're already in heavy armor with a heavy helmet covering your entire head. The weight of the horse hair on top gives it an additional added weight. 
and you have little slits in the front to see out of. Around you are packed men, other Athenians, that are realizing that they are defeated as the Spartans keep moving forward. And they're shouting out both in anguish and in defiance. And in the middle of facing down this enemy that is closing in on you in these conditions, you suddenly find yourself sinking into the ground. This is a terrifying situation to be in, and the Spartans bowl over the Athenians. 150 men are killed, and the men of the Piraeus are defeated. So now, it's not a glorious win for Thrasybulus and his men by any means. Instead, they are utterly defeated, and it's only the king of Sparta that decides a solution other than total massacre is best. This is not Lysander we're dealing with. This is a different Spartan ruler. And so what he does is he sends secret messages to the men of the Piraeus, while also sending secret messages to the other men in Athens, in the city proper, the supporters of oligarchy. And he basically fishes out people who are willing to talk, and then tells them exactly what to say. He feeds the men in the Piraeus information on what terms Sparta proper will accept, and he basically orchestrates a peace with the men in Athens. We have to remember, Lysander is extremely powerful, and so we've kind of just gotten used to his politics, but there is a conservative party in Sparta that doesn't want Athens wiped off the map. It's fine with them being there. And so strangely enough, it is the conservatism of one of the kings of Sparta that is responsible for making a peace back in Athens. So Thrasybulus and his men are able to re-enter the city and restore democracy thanks to the Spartan king. Now, Athens had its democracy back, but this only meant that they were simply one more city in this new Spartan empire. They're still completely subject to the whims of Sparta. And the Spartan empire, generally, is not a good place to be. Within months of winning the war, and we're about a year after the war right now when democracy was restored in Athens, but within months after the war, Sparta handed the Greek cities of Asia back over to Persia as a thank you for funding the war with their gold. This would have been devastating to these Greek cities. The propaganda that the Spartans had been using to recruit these cities during the war was free the Greeks. But this was shown to be merely propaganda when they gave all these cities back to Persia. The cities that they kept, they appointed brutal military governors over. Just to contrast, in the Athenian Empire, if you didn't like how you were being treated or you had an issue with a neighboring city, you could go to Athens and you could appeal to their courts for help. Now, sure, this might be a sham sometimes and the courts weren't always fair to these cities and usually ruled in the favor of Athens, but you did have a legitimate avenue in which to voice your concern. In the Spartan Empire, there was no appeals process. There was no court. Spartan governors and citizens operated with impunity. And if you thought you were being treated unfair, well, you better hope the local Spartan ruler liked you, because you were simply at their mercy. Even if you had it rough under the Athenian Empire, and were trying to make the best of things now in the Spartan Empire, probably the crowning achievement in Spartan hypocrisy was that they exacted tribute from their empire. Does that remind you of anything? There wasn't even really a pretense for this. The Athenians, when they pulled tribute from their empire, at least had the excuse, well, we need to protect ourselves against the Persian menace. Give us your gold, we'll give you some ships, we'll protect everybody. Athens at least had that reasoning. Sparta didn't even offer a reasoning. They just took it. Now I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but Lysander is attributed with saying, deceive boys with dice, 
and men with oaths. So, Athens was back as a democracy, but it was merely one more city in the Spartan Empire, and the years ticked by. The Spartan Empire was generally stable. After all, they had peace with Persia after fighting alongside them for the past several years of the Peloponnesian War, and there wasn't any other city in Greece that could really challenge them. Argos and Thebes were strong, but they didn't have the vast network of alliances, both willing and otherwise, that Sparta did. So Sparta are more or less stands alone, and their empire generally just continues on. Years pass. The scenario for Athens right now is actually one that we've seen in plenty of movies. There are plenty of movies out there where the homeland of the protagonist has been captured or destroyed, the former glory days are gone, and the few heroes that remain of this broken society that are still alive have escaped and are now a noble fugitive in a land far away. A recent example of this kind of occurs in the Batman movie with Bane that came out a few years ago, when Bruce Wayne is imprisoned while Gotham burns and he's helpless to do anything about it. Or, probably more apt to our show, Odysseus in the Odyssey, when he wanders about after the Trojan War while his wife is at home, and suitors attend to win her over while squandering the wealth of his estate. Both of these protagonists are in exile while their once-functional home is in ruins. But the example that I'm going to go with here, to illustrate the Athenian situation, is the Disney classic movie, The Lion King. Bear with me for a second. Scar, the villain of the movie, kills Mufasa, the hero of the movie, and the rightful king of the Pride Lands. Scar takes control of the kingdom, and Mufasa's son, Simba, is forced to run for his life, away from his rightful kingdom and away from Scar and live in self-imposed exile. The once beautiful Pride Lands turn dark and dreary, while those that once lived there in glory now shuffle about with her heads down, just trying to survive the dominion of Scar. Simba runs away and lives out his own hero's journey while in self-imposed exile, before eventually gathering enough strength to return and fight Scar for control of the Pride Lands. My point here is that this is a common literary trope, the noble fugitive, but it literally played out in Athens. All the past leaders of Athens are dead, its fleet destroyed, the few survivors still in Athens are powerless against the wrath of Sparta if it falls down on them, and the only leader still alive who's free from Spartan rule is Conan who fled from Athens and is taking shelter in Cyprus. Much like Batman in that desert prison, Odysseus stuck on the island of Calypso, and Simba in exile in the jungle, Conan is far away from his home and powerless to bring about its salvation. Unless something changes, unless Batman escapes that prison, Odysseus the island, or Simba his fear, things are going to stay as they are, and the Spartan Empire will continue to stand, with Athens being just one mere city in it. The catalyst for change, and for Conan, doesn't occur right in front of him. Instead, something happens in Persia that will change the life of Conan forever and the fate of Athens. To appreciate this change, though, let's take just a second to remember some key players in Persia we haven't touched on for a couple episodes. So first off, you remember Cyrus, right? The son of the king of Persia. The enthusiastic friend of Lysander who had helped bring over a lot of the cities of Asia Minor. The ambitious young teenager who wanted to one day sit on the throne of the Persian Empire. Now he has decided for a variety of reasons that now is the best time to go ahead, cash in all his chips, call on his new Spartan friends he strategically made while fighting Athens, and raise an army to make his bid for the throne. So one factor 
is Cyrus and his gathering army. Next, we have a Persian satrap. We've discussed a few different ones so far. They're the local governors that run various districts of the Persian Empire on behalf of the king. Harnabas is the one that we spent the most time with. But if you remember back to the days of Alcibiades when he was still alive and running for his life from whoever he has offended recently, he once took refuge in Persia with one of the local satraps. This was the satrap that Cyrus eventually replaced when that guy was not doing his job so great, dealing with the Greeks, and he was kicked out of his province and given control somewhere else less important. When we brought him up in the past, I didn't introduce his name because at the time, I just didn't want to make it more confusing by throwing in another minor character. But since he has returned and playing a more prominent role, it would be more confusing to not give him a name. So his name, as best as I can figure out, is Tisaphone. And you can imagine that Tisaphone did not appreciate Cyrus coming in and taking his province. But he just so happened to catch wind of the army that Cyrus was trying to raise to make his bid for the throne, and so Tisaphone was ecstatic to be able to bring this news to the king. So now we have two Persian satraps, Parnabas, who's off-governing but out of the picture for now, Tisaphone, who is gunning for Cyrus, we have Cyrus, the Persian prince, and we have our Athenian hero in exile, Conan. Tisaphone sends word to the king about Cyrus making his play for power. Cyrus takes his army, including 10,000 Peloponnesian Greeks, thanks to the Spartans, and proves Tisaphone right. He goes marching out and meets the king in battle. Tisaphone is there supporting the king, and he even claims to have had killed Cyrus in battle himself. Regardless, though, if this is true or not, Cyrus dies, and there goes his coup attempt. Tisaphone is back in the graces of the king and has given his previous province back to govern. Here's the issue, though. The province has just spent a good amount of time warming up to Cyrus, the mortal enemy of Tisaphone. So when Tisaphone takes power, these cities are scared, and rightfully so. He starts setting up to punish them, and they appeal to Sparta for protection. So the super short version of that, if you didn't really follow what I just said, is that there's now a new Persian governor in this area, and he does not like the cities of Greece in that area very much. So those cities are worried. They ask Sparta for protection. Now Sparta, being Sparta, and usually not being too subtle, takes a direct approach and attacks Persian soil to address what they see as a localized problem. And on a local level, yeah, this is a scuffle between a Persian governor and cities that once had a close relationship with Sparta. So it's a bit like two cities having a scuffle. Cities fighting each other, maybe not such a big thing on a global scale, but here's the problem. If one of those cities is Tijuana, Mexico, and the other is the neighboring San Diego, California, that's not a city scuffle. That's an international incident. And to add to this problem, Persia and Sparta are officially allies. They just fought against the Athenians side by side for a decade. So the Spartans fighting like this, they're treating it like a localized issue. But back in Persia, Parnabas is looking to the south with eyes like saucer plates. He's furious. He fought personally side by side with Sparta against the Athenians. He was the guy, if you remember, that ran out into the ocean on his horse and screamed at the retreating ships around him to continue the fight against Athens. He was a combat veteran who had fought with Sparta, and now Sparta was attacking Persian soil. He told them to stop. They didn't. He appeals to the king and says that the Spartans need to be taught a lesson. The king agrees. The king of Persia is now looking for a man who's an experienced naval commander, 
Ideally, this commander would also have experience fighting Sparta, and it would be nice if he could potentially bring along some Greek allies who have a bone to pick with Sparta and help out. On a completely unrelated note, we have Conan hanging out in Cyprus with 1,600 men, and, by the way, Cyprus is a Persian vassal. The Persian king makes the obvious connection here and calls on Conan to lead his forces against Sparta at the king's expense. Persia will now be backing Athens against Sparta. Conan had been granted the king's blessing to crush Sparta and given the means to do so. Now provided with a new gathering place of enemies for Sparta and hope for Athens, support starts to gather. Some quickly, some slowly. Persia begins tapping the resources in the far reaches of its empire, calling men and ships, and they begin to gather in distant places while slowly moving towards Conan and Cyprus. In Athens, though, they feel the draw of Conan and Persian power, and they are set on fire. Ships are fitted out at citizens' own expense, manned with people from all over the city, and slip quietly out to sea to go join Conan. Hundreds of men drift from Athens and fly towards Conan. In an audacious move, the Athenian assembly even approves a few ships to go join Conan in Cyprus. But on advice from Thersebulus, they disowned the ships shortly after they left so that Sparta wouldn't come knocking. Support is slowly gathering. While Athens is nowhere near its former glory, it is starting to burn just a bit brighter. Now, although Athens is galvanized and support is rapidly flowing towards Conan, Persia was far more slow to act. When it came right down to it, it was Persia that had the forces to support Conan and really make the difference here. But Persia was very slow. Years were ticking by as they gathered support. And so, while fiery, energetic, and hopeful Athenians were pouring into Cyprus, they all had to wait on the support of Persia before they could act. And Conan waited and waited, but he eventually appealed directly to the king after years of delay. Conan did refuse to do the honors required to go see the king, and so the king just sent messengers and they communicated that way. But the king, even though he didn't meet face-to-face with Conan, he agreed with pretty much everything he was saying. Conan would ask for more ships, boom, he'd get more ships. More crew, more pay, he'd get them both. The king even allowed Conan to pick a Persian commander to help Conan and to help command the fleet. And in a bizarre twist of fate, Conan picked Parnabas. The same Parnabas that had previously been with the Spartans, fighting against Athenians, now joined Conan, his fleet of 100 ships, and they sailed west together to fight the Spartans. Now, in the time that has passed in the Spartan Empire, Lysander has died. Lysander has his own completely different story we'd have to spend a full episode on. But in short, he has continued trying to expand his own personal value by taking over new areas while pushing the Spartan Empire into new places. During one of these battles, he ends up being killed. And so he is no longer in control of the Spartan fleet when Conan and Parnabas show up. The Spartans instead have this man in charge who's never really been in that big of a battle before. He's not really equipped to be a leader. And so when Conan shows up, he uses the trick that Alcibiades used in Sisychus. 
He sends out a small portion of his fleet. The Spartan leader takes the bait, comes out, and is swiftly surrounded and killed. The rest of the Spartan fleet falls apart, and Conan has an utter victory here. He takes 50 ships, he takes 500 prisoners of war, a lot of the men on these ships actually abandon their ships, jump off the ships and swim to the shore, and Conan can just come up and take these ships. Now, times have changed considerably since the end of the Peloponnesian War. We're looking at about a decade later now, so much time has passed. And at the end of the Peloponnesian War, Sparta had Lysander leading them with the backing and full support of Persia. But now, they just lost this fleet and they don't have Persia backing them anymore. They don't have a place to get a new fleet. And so Conan and Parnabas with this Athenian-led Persian fleet bulldozes the Spartan Empire. Conan and Parnabas start sailing around the Aegean knocking down Spartan stronghold after Spartan stronghold while declaring to cities that anyone who joins them would be free. Actually free. They can choose their own government. Defections from Greek cities piled up while this fleet sailed around breaking those that still resisted. Support was sucked into Athens and the strength of Athens, bolstered by Persia, exploded through the Spartan Empire. The Spartan Empire crumbled. It had stood a mere 11 years. Parnabas considered his job done, and as he went back to Persia, he left money with Conan to rebuild Athens. The long walls were rebuilt, ship sheds rebuilt, fortifications put back in place, and to celebrate this rebirth of Athens, a tomb and altar were built in the Piraeus to honor Themistocles, that first naval hero of Athens. The city that had once been blown out to the corners of Greece as people drifted around simply looking for a place to live now had the chance to return and Athens began to burn bright again. As Athens re-emerged onto the stage in strength once again, it did not take long for the same forces to start pushing against each other while trying to find an equilibrium. Conan wanted Athens to remain as a strong city, but only as a city, while Thersebulus wanted Athens to expand back out and return to their former powerful empire. Public opinion was hugely divided, and much like the gridlock we have seen many times in Athens, neither opinion had all of Athens behind it, and so the city continued securing small important areas, but otherwise being kept in check by the more conservative parties. Athens stayed this way for several years, and eventually, both Conan and Thersebulus died. Fittingly, Thersebulus died on campaign, and Conan on a diplomatic mission to Persia. Like we have seen many times before, Athens began to push into the Hellespont, and, also not for the first time, Sparta began to ask Persia for help. Now, if you have a headache from hearing all of this that happens over and over again, imagine how the king of Persia must have felt. They have been dealing with this for generations, and the king was sick of it. He came in and he secured a peace with everyone. He left a few cities to govern themselves, kind of creating a no-man's land in the middle where cities would rule themselves, but then otherwise left a few cities to Athens, kept a few for themselves and declared that there should be peace in Greece. He was sick of this. And as you can expect, this did not last very long either. 
Sparta almost immediately began attacking cities and setting up Spartan alliances and garrisons. A force of 10,000 even went in a night attack on the new Piraeus, but they were caught before they could get there. And it was obvious that Sparta would not accept the new order and continue to attack. Everybody was furious with Sparta for breaking this treaty, and Athens formed a league of cities to oppose Sparta. Seventy cities joined the league, and Athens began to flex its new strength. The timber around Athens had already been used for their first empire, so they would import timber for new ships. The new ship sheds were built twice the length as before to house two ships under one roof. New technology and building techniques were used to enclose the hulls of these ships and protect the rowers. Ore banks were built on dry land to teach rowing to the raw recruits. The league charter called for 200 ships, so shipbuilding was made the responsibility of the council. Now, as you are hearing all of this, don't you just want to scream to them, what are you doing? Remember your past. What did this cost you the last time you tried it? But Athens had learned. In this second empire that they were forming, they would not collect tribute. They prohibited Athenians from owning land in other cities to prevent the pseudo-colonies that Pericles often used. The allies would not be pressured by Athenian power, and instead of a tribute, a tax of 1 of the trade in the Piraeus would go towards funding the war and this new fleet to oppose Sparta. Still, it may seem like the entire Peloponnesian War was for nothing. The ship sheds were back, the Athenian alliance was reformed, the walls were rebuilt, and the Piraeus was refortified. But something had changed. The most hated things about the Athenian Empire had been left behind, and the people for now had learned. In time, the same forces would be revived, gravity and expansion warring against each other. The cities in the new league would eventually grow tired of the second Athenian Empire, and the cycle would continue until Athens was disrupted by more powerful nations. But for now, at its rebirth, the Athenian Empire had returned, and it looked entirely different. There is one more thing you should know about a supernova. Just like a tree growing up and then falling in a forest to die and give nutrients to the plants around it, a supernova is also part of this cycle. It may be the death of the star, but that is not the end of the story. The supernova that went off in 1054, the one we mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, is today, 1,000 years later, recognized as one of the most incredible things in the night sky, the Crab Nebula. With an outer shell of brilliant reds and winding caverns of green and blue throughout the center, it is stunning. This nebula is the remnant of a star that died a thousand years ago. But those brilliant colors, the legacy of a previous star, is more than just the stunning visual. Here are the grounds for a new beginning, new stars, new materials, the iron that is swarmed in a star's core, the very iron that kills it, is also one of the very few ways that iron is formed. The iron in the earth, your car, and even our blood was likely formed in the core of a dying star. That is something you might have heard before, that we are all made of dead stars. And that is pretty cool. A star dies, we are born. But what this also means is that incredible violence had to occur in order to permit our existence. It was through magnitudes of tribulation and unimaginable cosmic violence 
that we are possible. In the same way, the legacy of Athens is more than its stunning history, its violence and peace, ingenuity and brute grit, its occasional bursts of cruelty but also its conscious efforts to improve. These events bore the elements necessary to bring us into the political thinking of today. Their legacy is more than the sun-bleached skeleton of the Parthenon. It is also the ideas that were forged in the crucible of Athens and now live on both in our minds and in every rebirth of democracy today. Thank you for listening to History in the Making. If you have enjoyed this first season, please share it. It makes all the difference. Support it on Patreon if you can, or simply leave a review on iTunes. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and I'll talk with you all again in about a week as we welcome Dr. Melissa Lane.